Just think about holidays and the amount of money people spend on going away for a week with their families often and how happy they actually are on the holiday, right? If anyone is being honest about that, family holidays are mostly a fucking nightmare. And no one enjoys the company of a three or four year old. I don't think any parent, they must be lying. Who can enjoy that? They're just fucking hard work. Behavioural Science Podcast for enthusiasts of the mind and all its clever tricks, with me, Daniel Ross. As Rory Sutherland said, the human mind does not run on logic any more than a horse runs on petrol. With which thought I shall introduce my partner in conversation today, Professor Paul Dolan, the head of BS at the London School of Economics, aka Professor Happy. Now Paul knows what makes us feel good. It's all about what we pay attention to. He wants us to choose to spend our time doing things that bring us pleasure or give us purpose, and ideally both. He will tell us how we can redesign our lives to be happier. He'll also explain why we care so much about what other people do and how we can learn to listen more to those that disagree with us. At the LSE, Paul's main research interests are human behaviour and happiness and the relationships between them, particularly as they apply to policy. He's the author of the best-selling books, Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After, both of which I read, by the way, and cannot recommend highly enough. He is also the host of the Duck Rabbit podcast about the polarisation problem in our society. I must say, Paul is really one of the great personalities of the behavioural science world and is researching a field with which we should all care about, being happy. I think you're going to love listening to what Paul has to say. Paul, welcome to a load of BS. It's great to have you along today. Thank you very much for having me on, mate. It's my great pleasure. Well, I should really maybe be referring to you as Professor Happy, like your good mate Mig in Ibiza, who you refer to in your book does. Is that is that is that appropriate? I don't know. Something's come and bite you in the arse, don't they? I wish I didn't say that. <laughs> That's what everyone seems to call me. I don't know why they do it. It makes me fucking miserable every time I hear people say it. <laughs> oh, I think it'd be a fab uh, pseudonym for any future books. You can just eliminate all your other titles and accolades and just go with this. Well, that's true. That's true. I mean, and there's certainly worse things to be called. I've certainly been called worse things. <laughs> exactly. Maybe it's your sort of best kept for the summer DJ's season in Ibiza. Where of course, the title could have other sort of lucrative connotations for you. Yeah, we could just use the acid house smiley face, could we? Exactly that. Now, to the subject in hand, as I said just before, I've thoroughly enjoyed both your books on happiness, happiness by design and happy ever after. And let me just paraphrase very briefly. You can fill in any inaccuracies or, or correct me, but there are obviously overlapping themes, but the former is about understanding Understanding what happiness is and how we can find more of it. The second is about the social narratives around happiness, which consume our lives. It's about recognizing them, acknowledging their at times illogicality and finding ways to escape them. And I must say, I found the books quite therapeutic, actually. I think they do what good behavioral science does, which is to get quickly under the skin of why we do the things that we do, accepting that we are sometimes rather self-sabotaging and fallible creatures. But they also put forward very practical guidance and they also accept the imperfections in our understanding of the subject. You also publish the Duck Rabbit podcast, which talks about polarization and our discourse, why we seem unable to agree to disagree, why we take divided positions and all sorts of subjects. I thought maybe let's just start there, actually, because I think as we think about the balance between happiness and misery, I mean, sport, for one, has always been tribal, if more often as pantomime. But do you think topics like Brexit, Trump and COVID have highlighted a natural tendency towards very polarized opinion that's always been part of us? Or is this a more recent trend do you think yeah it's a super question and it's quite a quite a hard place to start because i don't think for most of these things there's a straightforward answer but just to say i think you summarized my two books really really well so thank you that was an excellent job we have a natural tendency to like people that like us right and to agree with us it's much easier to be surrounded by people that nod their heads rather than shake them and that must be part of the human condition And actually, there's an efficiency to it as well, right? If I know something about what you think, then it avoids lots of transactions costs that might be involved in us agreeing on a market price for something or, you know, actually in all forms of exchange, in economic and social exchange, it makes it easier if we know something about what the other person thinks and if they think something like us. So there's probably good efficiency reasons as well as just obvious, you know, kind of psychological reasons, if you like, why we'll be naturally drawn to people that agree with us. So I don't think that 
Brexit, Trump or social media has kind of done anything that hasn't already been in the human condition. The question is whether they, I suppose one of the issues is whether they've magnified those effects. And I guess there's probably a different answer to each of those. Brexit, I find really interesting in the sense that no one cared about Europe before we had the referendum. Right? It was like number 18 of 20 issues that people cared about. Right? It wasn't very high up on most people's priorities. And yet, you know, once we had the vote, oh, my God, then you really had to care. And actually, to be honest, as someone who didn't really care that much one way or the other, I could see arguments from both sides. And I kind of, on balance, would probably would have stayed in the EU, but not by huge amounts. And the, the, the worst thing to have was not to have an opinion on it. It's like almost like, how can you not have a very strong view about this issue? And we were kind of forced into picking a side, not just picking a side, but then adopting that position with, you know, extreme fervour and disliking, even hating people that had a different opinion on it. So I think Brexit kind of drew out something that probably wasn't actually there to any great extent before. And maybe in a similar way, social media does that as well. It kind of magnifies differences and forces us into positions that we might not actually adopt because we need to signal to everybody else that we're a, you know, a kind of strong view on a particular issue. And the worst, not the worst, but I suppose the worst thing for that is our unwillingness then to listen to someone who disagrees with that opinion and I think you know there's that saying about how don't take my kindness as a sign of weakness it's almost like we kind of feel like don't take my strong opinion as a sign of my unwillingness to listen to the fact that you might disagree with me and have a different view about things and I think we do see it almost sometimes as a sign of weakness if you're willing to listen to a different opinion maybe you don't feel so strongly about this issue as you ought to maybe you're not convicted enough in your views about something and I think there is a definite tendency for us to be increasingly signaling how much we care about a certain issue, how much we have a certain identity as being a kind of person, and in particular, how much we dislike people that would have a different view about not just many issues, but even just one issue that becomes fundamentally important to us. We all know the world is much, much more complicated than that. Actually, most of these issues we have an ambivalence about. Actually, if you think about them, there's nothing that's obviously clear cut one way or the other. There might be some things that you feel that about. So one of the things I want to try to do in my next book is to do for polarization what happiness by design did for happiness, right? So in a way, not to think about how you can think yourself happier and to do it in the usual self-help way by being positive and all these things that you know you should do, but actually designing environments institutions and organizations and your life and your day in ways that make it easier for you to be happy without thinking about it i think the same thing applies to polarization issues we're not going to address them just by thinking ourselves more tolerant <laughs> um, i just need to remind myself to listen more to people that you know disagree with us we're going to do it by embedding listening and tolerance into our environments into our daily lives into our organizations and into our institutions right that was a that was a very long unwieldy answer to your question no no perfect now i mean i think brexit amongst other things became symbolic of other things so it was less of pure vote about european unity and it became about some other associated factors and so it became very symbolic I and mean, i think it's a shame that we've lost all sense of moderation and proportionality in debate i think there's nothing wrong with that i think it's a sign of maturity and intellectual rigor to be able to shift opinion. I mean, there's a cliche, which is to say that, you know, economists, dare I say, are rather guilty of having overly high conviction about a position and then spending a career reinforcing it. But I suppose if you have an opinion for long enough and you work in the business of market cycles, eventually you'll be right. <laughs> yeah, it's like a broken clock. You're right twice a day. But I guess the thing that's been interesting for me in my experience through COVID is someone who's been critical and skeptical of the restrictions is, and I've always, I think I've always made the case in a very measured and polite way, recognising that, you know, there are clearly alternative perspectives. We were dealing with a world of enormous uncertainty. And so you'd expect, first of all, no one to actually really know what to do. <laughs> and secondly, to accept that there might be different views about what to do, which I've been very willing to accept right from the start. And yet I've had accusations of being, you know, a COVID denier or just let it rip or 5G or anti-vax or whatever, because I didn't take, I guess, what was the traditional line amongst many academics, which was to be pushing for restrictions longer, sooner, harder, whatever. And I, I found that very, very interesting because, you know, I may not have been a million miles away from them, but I'm seen as being a million miles away from them the moment that I disagree with them even ever so slightly. And then being pushed into the other extreme, being assumed to take on all of the characteristics of people that that might disagree with those measures. I mean, do you think then all these sorts of divisions make us any happier? I mean, is there any research on that? We seem very naturally inclined to be divisive. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, again, I sort of, we sort of mentioned in passing social media, but I think that we need to expect an academic to say much more research is needed. And of course, we do need much more research and we need to really understand much more about the cause and effects that social media have on how happy we feel as well as how polarised we become. Because, you know, in one sense, the creation of those echo chambers is actually quite good for us, right? It's actually quite nice just to feel like there's lots of people out there like us. But for social progress and for dealing with maybe some of the, you know, more challenging issues that particularly around uncertainty, it's probably not a good thing. So there might sometimes be a tension between what's good for individuals in the short term and what's good for those individuals and for society into the longer term. Maybe we may come back to the polarisation subject, but just more broadly, one of the things I really liked about your writing and indeed pods is that I think like a lot of the best ideas, yours are simple at heart, if not always so in execution, which I think is a good springboard than to jump into the broader happiness subject. And the happiness literary genre is large and perhaps unsurprisingly, as it's presumably something that many of us strive for, but I also sort of think that its size and longevity don't say a huge amount for it. But what is fundamentally different about what you're saying on the subject and where are you seeing the flaws in the mainstream literature? I think it sort of touches on what we just discussed, which I went through a million miles an hour, but I can maybe say it a bit more measured and slower way now, is that all of the self-help genre, really, I think I'd say that without, without exception, is geared around changing the way that you think about things, changing maybe your attitude towards things, changing your preferences over things, changing beliefs, changing the way that you think about yourself and your life and your circumstances and so on. And yet behavioural science has taught us that so much of what we do simply comes about rather than being thought about. We're making thousands of decisions every day, most of those done automatically, habitually, without any conscious deliberation. So it would be unsurprising then that (laughs) thinking yourself happier is only going to get you so far, if anywhere at all. And I think one of the reasons why there are so many self-help books is because none of them work, right? I mean, actually, the single biggest factor predicting whether you're going to buy a self-help book is whether you've bought a self-help book. So clearly there's a market in these books that don't do very much good. One of the reasons is they don't enable you to embed the behavior change into your daily life, into your practice, into your experience, into your habits, into the automaticity of the way that you behave. So what happiness by design aims to do is to, I guess, refocus our attention on the role that context, situation and environment play rather than the cognition of our minds. So the simple behavioral science lesson is that, as you know, this is if you want to do something, make it easy. So it's all about thinking about, okay, well, finding out what things make you happy and then designing, organizing your day and your life in ways to make it easier for you to do those things that make you feel good. Yeah, because you, you define happiness in happiness by design as the balance of pleasure and purpose over time. And this is a way of looking at the world through our experiences rather than our evaluation of life. You call it a couple of different, you call it the pleasure purpose principle or that's sentimental hedonism. I think they're approximately synonymous. Maybe you could just bring to life this central tenet of the book in your thinking. Yeah. So I think in many ways that I feel like that's the most original contribution, I guess, of happiness by design is in part one, which is the definition of happiness. Because if we're going to be pursuing something, We want to be clear what it is that we are expected to be pursuing and maybe have some consensus around what that should look like. And most of what's been done in happiness research has asked people questions of the following kind, like overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? So it's a very evaluative, reflective question. Insofar as people think about it, it doesn't actually take them very long to answer generally, but insofar as they are answering that question, it's when you sit back in your chair, you know, how do you feel how life is going? And I always found that quite challenging Well, first of all, as a question to answer, but also what the interpretation of the answers to those questions ought to be, because some of the things that you think should be expected to make you happy will play into the answer that you give to those questions, right? You might think about whether you're wealthy, whether you're married, whether you've got a nice job or you've got a big house, which actually may not, sometimes they do, but may not always show up directly in the experiences that you have of your life day to day, the experiences that you have of the activities that you engage in, the people that you spend time with, and where your mind wanders off into other places. So I think I've long been committed to a much more experiential account of well-being, which is the flow of happiness over time. It's located in what we pay attention to in the minutes, hours, seconds, whatever of the, of the days that we live. That does a couple of things. First of all, it draws attention to the significance of time, right? Time is the scarcest resource that we have. Like literally, I mean, you can beg, borrow and steal money, but we're not getting back this time that we've been on this podcast. And but having been around policymakers now for, well, three decades, I guess, it's extraordinary how little of their time is spent thinking about how people use their time. A lot of it is about the conditions and circumstances of people's lives, often quite rightly. But, you know, time is that scarce resource. And it is one thing that policymakers could nudge and shove us into using 
to better effect or to get us to think about how we might use our time to better effect. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it does really locate happiness in how you feel and not how you think about how you should feel. I use an example in the book of a friend of ours who we've known for a very long time. We went for dinner and she complained about every aspect of her job, her colleague, commute, her boss, everything about her day-to-day experiences was miserable categorically. And then we were leaving dinner and she, and she stood up and she said, you know, I absolutely love my job. And she wasn't lying. It wasn't like she was she was giving a false account. It was just she was drawing on two accounts of happiness. One is how it made her feel. The other was how she thought it should do. She worked at a company that her parents were proud of her working there. Her friends were jealous. Somewhere she's always wanted to work. So when she told the story of whether it should make her happy, it ought to. <laughs> it just, in fact, didn't day to day. I think it's that experience that's much more important. And then as you just then finally you drew attention to the distinction that I think is important between pleasure and purpose. So a lot of the criticism of happiness as an experience is that it's just hedonic. It's all about pleasure. It's all about fun and enjoyment. And life is a lot about that. But I think it's also about more eudaimonic experiences of purpose, of fulfillment, of meaning, of feeling engaged, of feeling like you're doing something that has a point to it. Whilst you're doing it, it's not in the evaluation of it afterwards, but in the moment of experience. So I think I make a case for why happy lives are ones that have a good balance for that individual between experiences of pleasure on the one hand and purpose on the other. I mean, the concept of happiness as a function of time is something that I was playing with in, in my mind a lot, something I found quite fascinating. And this is the question in my mind, which I was trying to tease out or trying to understand from the book is, what is the relative importance of past memories, the present moment and future projection in designing happiness or being happy, perhaps in, in normal language? Yeah, that's a super question, Dan. You're really hitting on some really interesting issues. So to answer that question, just think about holidays and the amount of money people spend on going away for a week with their families often and how happy they actually are on the holiday, right? If anyone is being honest about that, family holidays are mostly a fucking nightmare. People don't really enjoy them. It's a lot of stress. If you've got young kids, it's basically childcare somewhere else. All the family members of whatever ages want to be doing different things at different times. But you might get one moment in the week where it all comes together. You know, a meal or, I don't know, whatever, going up the Eiffel Tower or wherever it is, you know, where everybody's enjoyed themselves at the same time in the same way. Well, it's a lot of fucking money to spend on one moment. <laughs> but, of course, they're not spending that money on one moment. They spent the money on all the anticipation that they've had of going away on holiday, right, in the year looking forward to it. Often people, you know, book next summer holidays this summer. But that's a lot of anticipatory utility. It's a lot of anticipatory benefit in the experience or of the experience. And then there's memories, And actually, even if the holiday is really miserable, there isn't one moment of joy. There's often lots of good stories and memories of the misery, right, that become happiness, that become conversations, that become embellished as you talk about them more. And it's those conversations that create happiness in the memories. So actually, if you think about a holiday, it lasts all of the time that you're anticipating it. And then all of the months, maybe even years after, when you're drawing down the memory of the experiences. And I think, you know, too much of maybe too much of happiness research is focused on the experience itself and not enough on the anticipation and the memory. Because as you rightly point out, most of our life, actually, significant large part of our lives isn't lived in the moment at all anyway. It's lived in anticipation of future events and lived in memory of past ones. And maybe it reminds me, I keep saying this, is that one of the things that happiness research has done, and I, I haven't done very much on this either, is haven't done very much on, is conversations, the role of conversation in our lives and the significance of it of stories that we tell to one another about previous experience or maybe anticipations of future ones i mean interestingly i think there's a parallel with your example of holidays and education actually of course which you talk about as one of the reaching narratives in happy ever after i'm getting <laughs> getting my order of books correctly there's a sense of high emotional and or financial investment in any of these activities for example i mean i did a master's degree the thing costs so bloody much that when anyone ever asks you you know what was it like or was it a worthwhile experience you sort of dare not say it was anything but the most fantastic thing that you've ever done because to sort of uh, to disabuse that would be so somehow emotionally, psychologically damaging the idea that it was a bad decision and that you've just wasted close to £100,000. So you sort of post-rationalise somehow a little. There's a number of things in what you've just said. The first, well, not the first, one thing is, of course, often sometimes the more you pay for something, the more you have to post-rationalise it as having been of value because why would you be a fool to have spent so much money on it? That's part of the reason why our institutions can charge so much for these months. is people are going to love them afterwards because they've spent so much money on it. And another point related i guess in some sense is this kind of inability that we have often to admit mistakes or something right people often have friends who've moved to other countries or whatever who are having a categorically miserable time but they won't come home at least not straight away 
because they feel like they're going to lose face on having made a bad decision. I find that, I mean, that's pathological. It's literally pathological. The bad decision is to continue to make yourself miserable. I mean, that's the pathology. It's not coming home and admitting, actually holding your hands up and say, you know, I gave this a go and it didn't work out. Yeah, it's a sunk cost problem. It is, it really is. And we, you know, we sometimes, we often talk about perseverance and people sticking with goals. There's lots of literature on goals, right? On how to have more goals, better goals, break down goals into bite-sized chunks, all these things. Huge literature on that. Very little in comparison, relatively speaking, on too many goals, too much ambition, too much drive, too much sticking at things that are making you miserable. Sometimes we just got to quit and just get out and just say, this isn't working. But the other thing then you obviously, I mean, maybe we'll touch on the education or the role of education as a narrative when we move to more fully talking about happy ever after. Absolutely. I mean, funnily enough, I think there is some literature, which I can't remember, which is about the value of quitting, which I think is quite an interesting topic, which one would be fun to sort of read or write more about, which is just to advocate quitting either while you're ahead or even you're behind. I think there's something authentic and bold about doing that rather than persevering endlessly. But carrying on the conversation around happiness and definitions, you know, central to that explanation is attention and how we allocate it, where we pay it. And I just picked out a quotation from a writer called Ian McGilchrist. I don't know whether you're familiar with, but he's a philosopher and psychotherapist, a recently published an amazing two-volume tome called The Matter With Things, which sort of tries to do the small matter of understanding the state of the world, its meaning, and our role in it. And this quote came to mind thinking about your writing. And he says, attention changes the world. How you attend to it changes what it is you find there. What you find then governs the kind of attention you will think it appropriate to pay in the future. And so it is that the world you recognize, which will not be exactly the same as my world, is firmed up and brought into being. And I wondered whether that sentiment resonates with your understanding of attention. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the fact that we would have different experiences of the same stimulus based upon the manner in which we attend to it and the type of attention that we're affording a particular stimulus, which is why the subjective experience is so significantly important, right? You know, I've got tattoos and people will often ask me, do they hurt? And I'm like, well, some of them hurt in some places some of the time, but I have no idea how much it's going to hurt you because you see people in the tattooists who are screaming in agony and others are sitting there not feeling a thing. Now, there is brainstem measurement that you can you know, measure, but actually it's the experience of the pain that's what really counts, not the tattoo itself. And that's why when people often criticize happiness as being, oh, it's all subjective, I might, that, that's the point, because life is entirely subjective. All of our experiences are subjective. And that plays in, of course, with the role of attention. It's a subjectively, inter- you know, not interpreted, but, you know, allocated phenomenon. Yeah, because the idiom of paying attention to different facets of our life is actually very meaningful because, of course, it highlights the concept of opportunity cost. So does this, and you, of course, just talked about the fact that, you know, we can never get back our time, but does this mean then that we can exert more control over our happiness than we might actually imagine? Yeah, it's a good question. Let me just pick up on that opportunity cost point because it's right. You know, having been trained as an economist, you can't avoid thinking about these things in economic terms sometimes. And I do talk about happiness as a production process. So you you think of any stimulus, income, Um, you know your job or sex or anything does that make you happy and often people have jumped to taking that input and looking at the association with the output but that's like taking inputs into the production of widgets and just looking at the input to output you know you've got land labor you know capital and so on what's really fundamentally important is the production process in the middle you can have the same number of inputs and get much greater output if the production process is more efficient and the same thing applies with the allocation of attention Does money make people happy? Well, it depends on how much attention they pay to it and in what ways, (laughs) right? So that's been the missing link, it seems to me, in a lot of our understanding of happiness. It's not an input-output relationship. It's an input-output relationship mediated through the role of attention. And what that does draw our attention to is the allocation of attention, which is a scarce resource. And, you know, we use the term pay attention, don't we? Which is not an accident because you're paying by the opportunity cost of not being able to pay it, use it, spend it elsewhere. And so, yeah, so I kind of find that interesting that particularly a lot of the happiness economists who have been looking at the effects of income on happiness, for example, have failed to properly consider that production process that sits in the middle. Yeah, because it's worth noting that the production process of attention which you describe is more often than not happening at an unconscious level we're not sort of proactively every moment managing the kind of inputs and outputs of our actions and putting it into a mixer but how do we then differentiate between conscious and unconscious attention feels like a very deep question 
Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is that the boundaries between, you know, the unconscious and the conscious are very, very blurred. And this idea, you know, Kahneman system one, system two, thinking or whatever, is there aren't actually two systems in the brain. It's not like literally you've got two systems, an automatic one and a conscious one or a deliberative one. But it's a nice metaphor for how we process things and how we decide and make our decisions. But clearly very crude. And as I say, there aren't two systems. So there isn't like... You know, literally things that are unconscious and things that are conscious, but there's an interaction between those two systems in ways that are quite complex. Things can go from being deliberative to being automatic. I mean, think about a sports star that's training, you know, golf swings, tennis strokes. So a lot of effort, a lot of cognitive thought goes into the shots. So in the end, they become encoded in the automatic system. And then the worst thing that can happen to that sports star is it for it to come back into the consciousness, right? Because that's where you get choking, when they start literally thinking about their shots again. <laughs> they want to keep it as much automatic as they can. So complex relationships between systems, insofar as systems exist. But the important point, I think the behavioral sciences have converged on is a consensus around the fact that so much is done habitually and automatically. You know, the thousands of decisions you're making every day that you don't think about. And so, you know, designing environments that make it easier for the automatic system to run free will be a lot easier. <laughs> it would make it a lot easier for you to be happy without having to think about it. Yeah, but there's also the really reality, isn't there, that sort of stuff happens outside of our control, which we just have to react to. So it's not always a question of just choosing where to allocate our attention. You know, we get ill, we lose our job, our partner leaves us, and then it becomes, I guess, a question of adaptation. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think this is potentially a segue from the first book to the second, in the sense that although I've tried to, you know, I've made a case for why my book isn't like any other self-help book, or a self-help book, it isn't a self-help book, let's not even call it that. It is still in that genre of books that are about what you can do for yourself to make yourself happier. And it becomes an agency issue, then it becomes the responsibility of you, you know, irrespective of your conditions, your circumstances and your constraints and your preferences to do more for yourself in order to be happy. Just allocate attention differently, you know, and you'll be happier. It's kind of in some part true, but it also then, you know, my unease with that, of course, is it places enormous responsibility on individuals to do it for themselves. And maybe some of the reasons why some of the people are the least happy is because they can't do those things you know we're just then insisting more and more that it's their responsibility and their fault i guess if they don't do the things that they ought to be doing in some sense to make themselves happier so i kind of feel a little bit uneasy in some sense about that which probably may have unconsciously been <laughs> part of the reason why i wrote the second book yeah because i think one of the challenges that you describe to finding happiness it's sort of summarized by the backwards law if you're familiar with that it's like the idea that the more you pursue something the less likely you will achieve it, which was a notion originally introduced at least to the West by an English writer and philosopher, Alan Watts. So seeking something reinforces the fact that you lack it in the first place. I think this is what you're getting at when you're talking about maybe more like the journey rather than the outcome. But we really we need to focus more on the process, if you like, rather than the outcome. Well, that's definitely true. Once you've identified the determinants of happiness, which for, you know, there'd be lots of different things that what might float your boat might not float mine. But, you know, the standard things, I guess, standard things, you know, the obvious but overlooked things, music, going outdoors, helping other people, having new experiences, spending time with people that you like being with. We'd all be happier if we did any one of those things, more of those things each day, but not by paying attention to how happy they're making us. Right. If you're listening to music, thinking about, is this making me happy? Chances are you're going to be less happy than if you're just listening to the music and enjoying it. So once you've identified the determinants of happiness, you want to just get on with doing them and not paying attention to whether they're making you happy. Because at one level, it all sort of achieving happiness all sounds so simple based on what you say. You know, we all intuitively understand the things that we think make us happy, at least. And so it should be natural that we would want to make it easy for ourselves to do the things that we want and harder to do the things that we don't. But why do we continue to make mistakes? We do make mistakes. It is interesting. I mean, self-sabotage is a super interesting because, I mean, if you think about people often moan about all the harms that other people have done to them over their lives, and often rightly so, but I don't think anyone's harmed themselves quite as much as we harm our, you know, when we harm ourselves almost. It's kind of a really interesting part of the human condition to be self-sabotaging, even in ways that we're just aware of, but we can't almost like stop ourselves like a moth to a flame. And so I guess it is about, you know, making sure the flame's further away from you. It is about designing. It's not about having the willpower not to be drawn to the flame because willpower is very, very weak. I think willpower is one of the most overused, overrated terms that there is, but design power is really significant and important powerful you know that's where we're gonna stop doing things or do more of things that make us happy is by designing it into our lives yeah you do challenge the idea of free will if you like the idea that if only one strives harder for whatever it is that one wants then one can achieve it but of course you outline things like you know decision making context social environment genes 
and pure luck as really as the key determinants of one's life outcomes, right? I do. That's the final chapter of Happy Ever After. If you're back 100 years, the wiggle room for free will be much greater than it is now. Our understanding of those determinants of our behaviour, the genes, the environments, the epigenetics, the gene-environment combinations, the role of context and randomness, once you put all those into the mix, the wiggle room for free will is becoming increasingly small. It's an interesting question about whether it will ever disappear, right? I mean, you know, whether in 100 years' time it's got so small as to be almost irrelevant. But the cliché of the American dream is one surely just drowning in survivorship bias, right? Yeah, well, let me come to that then as well in a second. So, I mean, one thing about narratives I find really interesting in relation to this particular discussion is that we'll readily accept that talent and whatever is something that will be determined for us rather than by us, right? We'll often say that sports stars or people successful in business or whatever have got a talent that is God-given, even people will say that. And then they put all of the emphasis, all of the weight on volition in effort, right? Your propensity to work hard is something that you determine for yourself, by yourself. And why would that be the case? Why would everything else, why would most of all these other things be determined for us? And then this one thing, effort, be determined entirely by us. And of course, when you look at some of the literature, which there isn't a great deal, but you know, you see that people's propensity to work hard is a function of the relationship with their parents and how hard their parents work. All these things that then become determined for us rather than by us. Not to say that free will doesn't play a part. Also, not to say that belief in free will, even if it's a delusion, isn't good for us. One of the reasons that societies in the West in particular have grown over centuries has been the belief in free will, has been the belief in agency. It's a very good force for economic growth. So maybe, again, with lots of these things, it's, it's a very complicated answer. and it's, not straight, you know, it's clearly not straightforward. But a little bit of delusion about the whole of free will is probably good for us. Talking of other approaches to happiness and how we kind of face the challenge of finding it, there was one sentence which I found really one of the most striking across both your books. It was about happiness and the idea of sort of salience, relevance. And you write, if I'm going to quote you, many activities in life are like playing a piano that you do not hear. You're experiencing pleasure or purpose, but you're not appropriately attending to the experience. I found that rather a lovely expression, but you present an interesting nuance here because it's not only about immediate satisfaction, but understanding context and implications. I understood this to say that we sometimes fool ourselves about what really makes us happy, but I just wanted you to just talk a little about what you mean by playing a piano that you don't hear and indeed how then do we open our ears? Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't remember writing that. Oh, I can assure you, you did. <laughs> that must have been quite a lot of... Well, actually, let's let me deal with the piano in a different context because it relates to the following on from the last bit of the discussion, which is the epigenetics, because there's a lot of people who use that as an example of a pianist you know, playing the keyboard. You've got the genes as the keys, and then you've got the pianist as the environment activating the genes. And understanding the sound that's made by that epigenetic relationship is one of the most super interesting questions for our understanding of behaviour and well-being. Coming back to it, it, sort of is a bit related to what we said before, which is that there's a latency to kind of feeling good almost in a way. It's not like I'm like, it's not like I notice it. You know, I'm not noticing. Maybe you don't notice. Actually, maybe you just don't notice all the good things in life. Maybe when a room is at the right temperature, you don't notice how hot or cold it is. I've used this analogy before. You know, in football, they'll often say at the end of a game whether the referee has had a good game or not based upon whether they've been noticed. Good refs don't get noticed during the game. Maybe the effect of our income on our happiness is like that. You don't notice it. When you're paying attention to not being able to pay the bills, feed the kids, that's very attention-seeking and makes people very miserable. It's not similarly because this would be to do a disservice to poverty. But on the other hand, when people are paying attention to their asset growth and their portfolios and their wealth and whether they've got the right stocks and shares, that's not very good for you either. When you're in the middle of not really thinking about money at all, then you're probably really enjoying money or enjoying the levels of income that you have. Maybe that's true of everything, is that when it's not being attended to, it's kind of when you're at a sweet spot almost, right? That's kind of when people are really happy. It's when people get lost in the flow of an experience, for example, right? Time will disappear. And you're not thinking about very much anything really except being engaged in what you're doing. And maybe there's a lot of parallels there across a lot of different areas, you know, domains, whatever you want to call them. Definitely. One of the other areas of your writing that I was fascinated by in the research is this sort of concept of trade-offs, happiness design. Lots of different, I think, examples of that, even if not exactly referenced as such. I mean, one of the areas you talk about, these sort of spillover effects, you know, these sort of endless approximate calculations that we make as one behavior has a domino effect on others, these behavioral spillovers, and which also connects this idea of moral licensing, which I found quite fascinating, the idea that we have these moral credits and 
debt. And then the other one, one of the others was areas of trade-off, which I thought was really interesting is going back to social narratives, actually relates to altruism in the responsible section of Happy Ever After. And that narrative says that one shouldn't seek recognition and praise for one's charitable work, essentially. It's considered rather vulgar and selfish. And you cite the example of David Beckham's leaked emails about his upset and not getting a knighthood or some kind of gong for all his efforts. And you make the point, I think quite rightly, that it is impact that counts first and foremost, less denying people a selfish emotion in the process. Why not just let people have their cake and eat it? An associated observation that I've observed in the charity sector more broadly is that it seems far less acceptable for executives running charities to earn commensurately with other for-profit sectors, because there's this implication that they should be working at a discount or close to free. And my sense is that charities lose talent and do less good work because of this. And I wonder whether that's a conceit that you've also observed, which is sort of connected to the altruism narrative. Interesting. So let me come to the altruism narrative after just briefly touching on the charity thing, because I have a lot of concerns about charities that become beasts of their own making and they become self-serving. You know, a significant portion of charitable donations will go into servicing the charity to ensure that they keep their staff levels or whatever else. And it's, you know, of course, important that people are employed in charities, but when significant amounts of money are not being used for the charitable causes that the charities set up for, it becomes quite problematic, I think. But on the altruism case, you know, you're absolutely right. It's actually one of the areas where we have the most and best causal evidence. Lots of good RCTs across different contexts and environments showing that when you tap into the selfishness of selflessness, you get more of it. When you remind volunteers of the personal benefits that come from volunteering, you get more volunteering for longer. What's wrong with just, you know, reminding ourselves of that, of kind of almost celebrating the personal benefits that come from helping other people, even if that's just a warm glow? Even if that's just a sense of feeling slightly better about yourself, walking a little bit taller. You know, David Beckham's example is really interesting, but I don't think David Beckham did all of that work for UNICEF, Beckham 7 Charity, whatever, because he was motivated by getting a knighthood. But once he'd done it all, it might have been quite nice to be thanked for it. And a little thank you seems a reasonable request. And it seems reasonable to me to get pissed off the thought of other people getting recognised for things that he felt weren't as important as the work he'd done that seems like that, that doesn't undermine anything about what he'd done and what i'd like those people that criticized him to do including i think piers morgan who weighed into him is to go to find the kids that have been helped by the money that beckham was raised and ask them whether they think he should give money back or beckham's motivations are impure and it doesn't have the same impact because i bet you if you found those kids they'd be very very thankful of the work that he did I mean, if you think of the marathon running industry or other sports which encourage people to raise money for charity, I mean, think how much money that's raised for good causes. And frankly, so what if that gives people a well-deserved warm glow after running 26 miles? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We still can't help ourselves, but, you know, we sort of get quite annoyed at the sort of sanctimony sometimes of people that are doing these things, you know, raising money for charity, but actually really all you want to do is just an incentive to run 26 miles. But it is interesting that we feel that because, you know, maybe it is a reminder sometimes of our own crapness and of our own, often lots of things that we get annoyed at are just a reminder of our own fallibilities is that I kind of wish I was doing that. So I really hate the people that are doing it. Well, there's a subtlety there, which is perhaps if someone <laughs> emails you asking for money for a 10K, you rather unreasonably out of context think you need to punish yourself and work a damn sight harder if you want my 30 quid. But frankly, what the hell's the difference if the money's going to a cause you care for? So what? And actually, what I always want to I feel tempted to say is why don't you just go and volunteer with the charity that you're trying to raise the money for <laughs> and actually give your time to them. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I think the transparency point's important though, because whenever you make something more visible, you see the behaviour more or less, you know, it would obviously depend on whether it's a good or a bad one. If you flush out bad behaviours, you get less of them. If you flush out good ones, you get more of them. And so we could definitely do more of that in the pro-social space, in the altruism spaces to make it more transparent. I can observe lots of things about you, right? Even on this, you know, Zoom call, but your generosity is something that is completely hidden. Absolutely no idea. Even people that I know very well, very well. I have no idea whether they're generous people with helping other people or not in any way helpful. Yeah. Let's just take a quick step back on the social narratives, just for context, because you divide the book into three sections, which discuss the reaching, the related and the responsible narratives. Can you, I mean, just at high level, bring those to life. So reaching narratives are in relation to reaching for particular outcomes or objects. So reaching for status, reaching for wealth, reaching for education, all of which are good for us to some degree, to be poor, 
to have no education at all, to have no social status would be bad for us. And so we quite rightly want more of those things when we don't have very much. The problem is they become addictive, like the consumption of anything. You could go to the past the point at which it's good for you, either individually or societally. And we just get sucked into wanting more of those things, irrespective of the current levels. It's like a more please, more please approach. Whereas the evidence is... It's evidence is, is clear because there's not lots of RCTs on these things, but suggestive of there being just enough, you know, reaching a point, I mentioned this in, in income, where you've got a sweet spot where you're not paying attention to it. Just enough in relation to education, just enough in relation to status, where the continual, you know, accumulation of these things is actually harmful for you in the rest of your life. So that's the reaching narratives, a kind of, you know, suggestion that we should be saying just enough rather than more please. That would be a simple high level summary of the reaching narratives. The related narratives are in relation to other people, marriage, monogamy and children, the three chapters in that second part. And it's like we have this kind of notion of what a fully fledged grown up looks like. A grown up person is someone who's married with kids. You're not quite an adult if you're still single and you haven't had kids or, you know, one of the comments that receives the most attention that I've ever had was when I said at the Hay Festival that you know some of the healthiest and happiest people are women that have never married and never had kids. They certainly have got very long life expectancies. And the marriage on balance, you know, is kind of good for men but more questionable for women. She's taking much more of a gamble than he is. The storm that that created, you know, and the number of women who were happy and thankful that I'd said this, they didn't have to keep going on protesting over and over that they're doing just fine without a man in their life or without kids but the number of people who were married with kids who really didn't like this either <laughs> it makes you wonder why they care so much but it also reinforces the very point you're making it totally reinforces i think that irony was lost on if that is that's the irony i sometimes get confused about what that means but yeah when it was really lost on people just, i was just trying to say look just chill out it doesn't actually really matter what people do as long as they're not harming you and everyone's like sort of wading in this is really awful it really harms me there is a particular challenge i think with the related category of narratives which is, of course, more than the others, people's sort of willingness to openly accept them beyond a minority at the fringe. Because, if, for example, if you take the reaching ones, you know, to switch your career left field or to take a big pay cut or to espouse a controversial view on the value of higher education may go against the social grain of those reaching narratives, but far less so than, say, opening up to polyamorous relationships or not wanting to sleep in the same bed as your partner or telling people that your kids don't give you huge pleasure. I mean, those are seem outwardly far more controversial positions. Sleeping the same bed is interesting. I mean, my wife and I definitely would have separated many years ago if she wasn't able to sleep away from me. But actually, it's actually a relatively recent phenomenon, actually sleeping in the same bed. I remember my grandparents, I think all that generation had twin beds in the, had beds in the same room, but were quite but about as far apart from one another as they could possibly be. And before that, when people could afford it, they would sleep in different rooms and even different houses sometimes. And the kissing, you're right, is really, really interesting. I wrote Happiness by this. I mean, you could tell probably when my kids were starting to become more pleasurable and purposeful for me and happy ever after, they were a bit older. But in, when I was writing Happiness by Design, they were like the worst possible age. I don't know whether they're like three or four years old or something. And no one enjoys the company of a three or four-year-old. I don't think any parent, they must be lying. Who can enjoy that? They're just fucking hard work. Well, ours is 15 months. I mean, she's quite charming at the moment, but I'm sure there's plenty all the hard work is yet to come. <laughs> you know, I think kind of accepting, just being honest about that. But look, you know, I don't really like my kids very much. I think someone said to me, I like their existence, but not their presence. And I think that's quite a nice way of, you know, summarising time spent with my kids when they were little. Well, I mean, it reflects also this whole idea of what a narrative is. One likes the idea of something perhaps more than the reality of something. Perhaps by one way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say, because we don't have, you know, this is one area where we don't have any RCTs, we don't know what the treatment effect is, because of course, for many of those people that want children and can't have them, that is very painful. Yeah, just quickly touch on responsible, because I digressed. Yeah, well, we did the altruism, we've done the free will thing, actually, maybe just the health piece, which could have been in reaching, in fairness, it's kind of, it's the way in which it's framed. Again, this quest for living as long as possible is a big part of it. Living as long as possible, I don't really quite have this obsession with prolonging life. We spend so much money in privately and publicly funded healthcare systems on the last few days, let alone weeks or months of someone's life, prolonging it almost at all costs. Yeah, it's one of the drawbacks or the problems of science and technology that it promotes the sort of the elongation of everything. It does, it does. And I talk about this on the Life or Death episode of the podcast because to try and put this as politely as I can, but there's a real selfishness and greed in the kind of idea that we want to be living forever and getting really, really, seeing it as tragic when your 95-year-old grand dies. You know, it's sad, you've lost your nan, but... Fucking take living to 95, mate. You know, I want my family to be happy that I've lived that long. I don't expect to live that long, by the way. But, you know, the idea that that would be seen as tragic. And what is tragic 
And you mentioned the survivorship bias earlier. This is where it really looms large. What is tragic is when people die at 55, 35, 15. But we don't notice them at 95, you see. All we only have, when we look at older people, is of those cohort, all the ones that have survived. We don't notice all the ones that have died before them. And there, the tragic loss is, you know, the real tragedy, if you take view of happiness over the lifetime, then the real tragedy is people who have short lifetimes, people who are dying in their 30s, 40s and 50s, who are typically people who don't have very much happiness as well. So they're doubly hit. And our priorities in public policy, I think, should be much more focused and recast on those that have the least well-being for the least amount of time. Funnily enough, just on that subject, without being overly morbid, uh, an old friend of mine, just a couple of years older than he's in his sort of mid-40s, just dropped dead about a month ago, you know, perfectly fit and healthy guy. And I mean, to say it gives you perspective is one of those horrible cliches, which sort of comes up most often, by the way, in footy, where a footballer has a child and it gives them perspective. Which you think, okay, fair enough. But no, I mean, in seriousness, it does make you stand back and think about what the hell is really important. Just on that point about perspective, don't you find that that's one of many examples of cheap talk that people will say? It's like it gives you perspective, what, for five minutes till then you're then worrying about all the things that you were worrying about before, the trivial, mundane things of your life that then become just as important 10 minutes afterwards. Yeah, well, in any sort of sports journalism, when something happens which reminds you that it's only a game, at what point did you exactly forget that it was just a game? <laughs> yes, yeah, Bill Shankly quote, isn't it, about football being life and death? Word. I mean, there's the other thing with football as well, where there's a sort of a layer of commentary, which when you see a footballer who's doing really great, say, charitable work outside of their job, which, by the way, is admirable, but there has to be this sort of sense that isn't this sort of really impressive? Because otherwise, what do you expect from these kind of people? But here they are really kind of stepping out and doing really impressive stuff. There are some, some really good examples of footballers during the pandemic as well. well not, not only during the pandemic, Marcus Rashford, Jordan Henderson. I think Juan Mata has done lots of work trying to get other footballers engaged in giving more of their wealth away. It's great. I suppose the only cynical point I'm making is that there has to be somehow commentary around it, a sense of mild surprise, perhaps, sometimes about how genuine and decent a lot of these guys are. Yeah, I guess. But they're, in some sense, incredibly sensible people as far as maximising their own happiness, because, as we said before, helping other people makes them feel good. Just a final question, Paul, before we go to the quick fire. I just wanted to, touching on the narrative around work and employment, you reference Apple CEO Tim Cook who starts emailing his colleagues at 4.30am. And I always find you read any number of a business leader interviews, one definitely observes a fetishization of the early starts of working really long hours, being unmanageably busy. I think, you know, we do obsess about productivity. There seems to be this sort of a strong narrative that to be successful, you have to be sort of dialing into international conference calls from the treadmill at the crack of dawn as the you know, espresso shots dripped into your leg. But I mean, you're a self-confessed gym obsessive with a successful career, but I don't suppose you sign up to that narrative particularly. No, I don't know. It's interesting. It's like any addiction, if it becomes an addiction, in fact, you're not choosing to do these things to the extent that you do, they become quite harmful. I don't think I'm addicted to anything. I do think I stop at the point at which it comes up. Or maybe I'm just not self-aware enough to know whether that is actually the case or not. But I think I am. I think I don't go past the point at which it's you know, good for me. But it's interesting that we create good and bad behaviours stories around them and it's not always according to their impacts of course if you are going to be productive in work then maybe you're creating surplus that's then creating jobs and wealth and stuff for other people which can be good but if it's just for the sake of working which gets seen as a good thing you know you, you work so hard but actually you're just like a hamster on a treadmill going round and round you want to ask yourself whether that's actually good for you and other people it's all about impact okay we'll sort of come back to that again it's all about whether and in what ways you're creating happiness value for yourself and for other people where other people really are a significant part of what should motivate us shall we do some quick fire let's do that here's the right answer brilliant okay what's your most powerful memory ah most powerful memory very very simple fa cup final 10th of may 1980 12th birthday trevor brookin won arsenal nil all right, because you were a West Ham. Funnily enough, mine equivalently would be 1991. Tottenham getting two, Nottingham Forest one. Went with my dad, sat right next to where Gary Mabbott lifted the cup, still got the flag. Nice, nice, nice. My 12th birthday was the peak of my life, by the way. It's literally been downhill since then. <laughs> pretty well, likewise. I mean, we have won one or two things since then, but I mean, it's pretty well the same. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. I don't know. I feel like people know enough about me. When you write these popular science books and you put quite a lot of yourself in them, you have people come up to you and they start quoting back bits about your life. You think, how the fuck did you know that about me? And you realise that you wrote it in a book. So I don't think there's anything I want to add at this stage. (laughs) 
fine. The answer in sum is read the book. Read, yeah, read the book to find out more about me. There's the probe. Talking of which, which book, and outside of your own, presumably, do you gift most regularly? I would give Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow because he's an intellectual hero of mine and someone that I had the privilege to work with. Penultimately, what's your desert island music? So I would, from the different stages of my life, I was into the jam as a kid. I'd have to take the jam with me. And then more in my dance phase, faithless, I guess. Great. And lastly, what makes you happiest? What makes me happiest? All right, well, not being asked that question for a start, that's quite a good place. I used to give a like a sort of stock answer to this, which was working, working out and going out, because that kind of is a nice way of capturing the pleasure and purpose principle. And at various times in my life, I've changed the balance between those things, between working, working out and going out. They would be the things that make me happiest. But it is the combination and balance between them that I think is important. I sort of fell into a booby trap asking Professor Happy what makes him happiest. I probably should have avoided that. Well, at least you know I've thought about the question. What makes me miserable would be a better one. Actually, I can't answer that one. Exactly, yeah. You better not answer that one. Apart from my kids and West Ham getting beat. Oh, obviously, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, with that, Paul, let me thank you enormously for spending this time with me. I must say that as an academic, your writing style and your articulation of the research that you do has great clarity of purpose. It's very real and tangible. It's very conversational. It's very personal. And I feel, I also feel, as we, as we touched, I have a working knowledge of your immediate family by reading your book. But all that seems, you know, really fundamental, particularly in discussion about what matters to us above all, which is happiness, however we want to define it and wherever we want to direct it. So thank you so much. No, thank you very much. Just quickly on that, if I may, with the kids, because I keep getting, people would often say to me when I talked about as a kid, I'd rather them be builders than I would them be bankers or whatever. And they're like, yeah, but that won't be the case when they get older and stuff and whatever. And I'm so far so good with them. I mean, they're sort of teenage kids now, so they're not at the point at which they're making those kinds of choices. But so far, nothing's bit me in the ass. But I think at some point it will, when they make a decision and a choice, and I think you really shouldn't be doing that. Go back to the books and question what you wrote. Exactly. Brilliant. Paul, thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you. So if there are only a few things you might want to hold from this conversation, it's that toddlers are highly overrated, sleeping in the same bed as your partner could lead to divorce, and family holidays are generally a nightmare. And now next time, talking a load of BS with me is the wonderful Jenny Kleeman, broadcaster, journalist and author of Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Sex and Death. It's spooky, jaw-dropping, crazy and very entertaining stuff. You do not want to miss out. And before you forget about me temporarily, do leave me a review wherever you listen. And if you haven't subscribed to my Substack platform where you can find all my articles as well as podcasts, please do so at a load of BS.substack.com. See you next time.